letter and of the ministry of Peter. The two letters, as we've discussed uh, Sunday, were different in that one of them was written very urgently to people who were undergoing persecution from without, from society. Uh, their lives, their liberties endangered uh, from the society in which they live. Second Peter, quite differently, at a later time, years later, is written to people at a time when the church has come through persecution and as always happens in times of ease, times of peace with society. There has been fermentation within the church and uh, false doctrine has begun to spread up. We dealt with 1 Peter under the topic by way of fire and 2 Peter by way of ferment. Now the reason I'm doing this tonight rather than on a Sunday is because Sunday I will finish 2 Peter. And then I want you to begin to pray that God will bless, particularly with the influx of people that we are having from many backgrounds who are not Christians, people who are baby Christians that God has given us to be stewards. As on the first Sunday in October, I will begin to go straight through expositorily the Gospel of John. I'm excited about that. Between now and the end of the year, uh, I will do John Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. Beginning in January, I will continue in John on Sunday mornings. And Sunday night, for about five months, we will take an overview chapter by chapter of the book of Revelation. And so for about the next eight or nine months, we're going to be dealing with the writings of the Apostle John. I'm excited about that. Now tonight, I want us to look at 2 Peter chapter 2. There are a lot of words here, more than, uh, more than its share of the words in this book or in chapter 2. And yet the subject matter here may be dealt with rather briefly as Peter simply elaborates some things about the false teachers. We talked Sunday morning about an urgent challenge. Peter issued us a challenge to get ready to be prepared because there was a problem coming. There was one at hand and we could solve it only by standing on the word. Sunday night, an urgent responsibility, which is very simply to live by, teach, and preach one thing, the word of God. Then he reinforced that from his own experience and told us that we had a confirming revelation that was more sure and certain even than personal experience, that being the written revelation in the Word of God. And tonight in chapter 2, an urgent threat as he details for them why the challenge and why the responsibility because of the threat that was coming that was already in existence to the life of the church. False doctrine in this early day of Christianity, 2 Peter being one of the latest books in the New Testament, falls near the end of the century during which Jesus Christ lived and died. Our calendar, though it is about four years off, is dated from the birth of Jesus. And Peter wrote this letter to Christians near the end of the first century. It might seem amazing to us that during a time when eyewitnesses by the hundreds were still alive, when thousands of people who had followed Jesus, who had seen him, who had been brought together at Pentecost and formed the church, which was dispersed by the early persecution in Jerusalem, were still alive to teach and to lead God's people that false doctrine had already come in. 
in this chapter, in this book, in the book of 1 Peter, in the book of 1 John, all of these late letters in the New Testament, we see born heresy from its father. The devil is the father of all heresy, but there is one particular heresy from which all false doctrine springs. Wherever you find false doctrine, it comes from one root, and that is an ignoring or a denying of the authority of God's Word. Now, folks, any way you slice it, any alternative to the authority of every page of the book is humanism. Humanism that exalts the mind, will, and ways of man above the Word of God. Any way you slice it, whatever criterion is used, whatever principles are used to decide what part of the Bible is accurate and authoritative and what part is not, it is humanism. And no humanist is a Christian. We are theists. We are under the government and the authority of God and His Word. Now, often scholars have suggested a radical similarity between 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude, which is the last letter in the New Testament immediately preceding Revelation. There are similarities. Jude and Peter deal with some of the same situations. They give some of the same illustrations, but in a careful examination, you will find that 2 Peter and Jude are more different than they are alike. For 2 Peter deals with the spread of the false teachers and their teachings, while Jude doesn't deal with the spread of their false teachings, but more likely writing at a later time, Jude, who was one of the half-brothers of Jesus, along with James, who left us an epistle in the Bible, Jude deals with the effects of the heretics in the life of the church. So they are very similar, and you will find many correspondences, and yet the differences are striking as we see the difference in emphasis that the two men make. You will find by reading here, by reading the letter of Paul to the Colossians, the Philippians, and in others of his letters, as well as 1 John and Jude, that the false teachers, and we will call them Gnostics. Now the Greek word gnosis means to know. And it was a term of derision that early Christians gave to these false teachers because they claimed to have a special subjective knowledge that they exalted above the Word of God. And so the early Christians called them as a cut, really, the knowers, thus the Gnostics. And these false teachers used orthodox terms. You know, that happens in our world today. You will find uh, the followers of Sun Moon you will find the adherents of the Mormon church, Jehovah's Witnesses, others among the uh, sects and cults that deny everything that is true about Jesus using the same words that we use. Often they will use very familiar words, but quite obviously they use those words with a different meaning and are able to deceive some for that reason. These Gnostics would talk about Jesus. They would talk about God. They would talk about salvation. But then in their teachings, as their teachings spread at one point where 
Paul said in 1 Timothy, like gangrene. At one point, they would talk about all of these things. It became obvious when their teachings began to spread in the church that they did not believe Jesus was God. They did not believe in the cross. They did not believe in the blood. They did not believe in salvation by faith. They would say, I believe in Jesus. Well, friends, I'll tell you what. I've read it, and if you'll let me edit it, and if you'll let me define all of the terms that are in it, I believe the Communist Manifesto. That's exactly what they did. They took our terms. They took the Word. They took phrases from the Word, and they mouthed long, mouthed long and loudly about believing the Word, and then they proceeded to slice it to pieces. We need to be constantly aware that the Word, the book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 with nothing left out has absolute authority for everything that we do. And anything in deviation from the Word is of the devil. God never promised us we'd like anything He said and that doesn't have anything to do with what the Bible teaches. Anything that is humanistic, anything that elevates man and his will above God and his word is of the devil. God has not committed anything into our hands that differs from his word. The Christian has one responsibility, and that is not to roll up his sleeves and purge the world of everybody that disagrees with him. That one responsibility is every day, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, to accept the position of death, knowing that he died with Christ, reckoning himself dead unto sin, alive unto God, yielding control of his life and letting Jesus live through him. It's the one responsibility of the Christian, the only one. There is a test. The test that you will find here in the book of 1 John, in the book of Jude, and other places in the New Testament is very simply this. All of the false teachers were not alike. There were some false teachers that were very moral. There were some that were totally immoral. But all of them alike decided that they had the right to edit the Word of God. That is the test. And by so doing, Peter says that even the ones who did not intend to do so, when they denied the Bible, they denied Jesus. Because Jesus founded everything that he did on the Old Testament Scriptures. They were committed to his memory. When he was tempted by the devil, he appealed to the Old Testament for strength to defeat temptation. When he taught... He said to the Jewish leaders, You think you know the Scriptures, but you do err, knowing neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, for the Scriptures testify of me. Every word in the New Testament that talks about the authority of the Bible is talking about the Old Testament. Very simply because there was no New Testament during the Old Testament era. It was the only Bible that Jesus had. It was the only Bible that Paul had. It was the only Bible that Peter and John and all of the other biblical writers had. And so when you begin with Matthew chapter 4 and go from there to the last book in the New Testament where God promises he will strike 
the name from the Lamb's book of life of anybody who takes away from his word. Every word of it refers to the Old Testament. And the test that you may apply is acknowledgement and acceptance of God's word. Notice the text. A little background on what Peter is going to be talking about now. In verses 1 to 3, here is an examination of the ferment. An examination of the ferment. Fermentation is the process of rotting, the process of decay. And here Peter makes some brief statements about the fermentation that called for the writing of this letter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. Now, sensuality doesn't necessarily mean physical immorality. It just means being dominated by the flesh rather than the spirit. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. B.H. Carroll, who is, I suppose, the patron theologian of Southern Baptist, who was the founder of our seminary in Fort Worth, has written an extensive set of Bible studies that have been published now for some 50 years under the title and interpretation of the English Bible. And in his section on 2 Peter, B.H. Carroll said this. Now, since this is Wednesday night and not Sunday, I'm going to take an advantage tonight and share with you and give credit, as I'm not always able to do, quotations from some of the great commentators, theologians, and, and linguists that have written about 2 Peter. Carroll said this. Chapter 2 of this letter is devoted to false teachers. The teachers referred to here are the Gnostics. They claimed to have a subjective knowledge that was more reliable than the written word of God. In chapter 2, we have these false teachers presented as follows. Number one, what they teach is not true. Number two, in their character, they are sensual. Number three, they are covetous. They are teaching things in order for personal gain. Number four, they despise dignities or dominions. They disregard church government. A bishop doesn't amount to anything. They are just like beasts that have no reason. In other words, as a wolf follows his own bloodlust, these men follow their natural instincts. They come in secretly. They are the abominable, these are the abominable heresies they teach. The denial of the Lord by subordinating him and his word. It makes no difference in their lives, for they come offering liberty when they themselves are the slaves of corruption. The whole chapter is devoted to them. This phrase in verse 1, destructive heresies, literally in the Greek is heresy followed by destruction. Now, it is true that the, their teachings hurt the work of the Lord, but that's not what Peter says. Peter is saying right here in his first mention of them that their false teaching will be followed by destruction 
from the Lord. Heresies followed by destruction. Now in verse 1a, note their presence. He says, in old times, false prophets came, just as also there are false prophets among you today. Here's their presence. In uh, the latter part of verse 1, their position. They deny the master who bought them, bringing destruction upon themselves. Now this word master is the word despotes. That is spelled D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S in the Greek. It is where we get the English word despot, which means an absolute and unquestioned monarch, a dictator, if you please. Now, often the New Testament uses, when referring to the Lord, the term kurios, which was the term that Rome applied to Caesar, which also meant a monarch of unquestioned power, but perhaps one with a little compassion. But now here, Peter is just laying out in simple terms the fact that God is our tyrant. We are at his mercy. We belong to him. We, he is in absolute control over all whom he has saved. And I'm not sure why Peter used the term here. Now in Greek literature, the word despot would be used in reference to a slave owner and his slaves, while the word curios is used in the New Testament to refer about the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, a husband and wife in 1 Peter. I don't really understand the difference, but that's interesting. I think Peter is, is stating in one way, as he has done several times in both of these letters, the fact that we, as God's people, have no rights and no prerogatives except those which are specifically granted us by the Word of God. Notice in verse 2, here is their persuasiveness. He says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned or spoken evil of. Then in verse 3, notice their perdition. He says their judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. You know, Peter wants his readers to understand that God knows what goes on. You know, it's just another way of saying, and Peter uses a very few words in this letter, it's just another way of saying, don't worry because God repays. Don't judge because God knows. Don't fear because God is just. And vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, as Deuteronomy says, as Paul quoted in the book of Romans. Here is their perdition. It is not asleep. It is not idle, it is active, and it will come. Now, a casual reading of the prophets, uh, specifically Amos, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, will reveal that false prophets were very common throughout the history of the people of Israel. They were very normal, it seems, and that's sad, but it's true. We find from Amos uh, and Jeremiah that many of the false prophets had started out as prophets indeed, but they had succumbed to pressure from people and had begun to water down God's Word and to teach things that God had not said. 
In Ezekiel chapter 2, the whole chapter, it's a commission to the prophet. God says to the prophet, the people will not accept what you say. They won't like a word of it, but I promise you that if you will fear me and not the people, I will build a wall around you, and no matter what they say or how they react, you stay true to my word. And it is interesting to note that every time in the prophets, I'm finishing Friday reading through the Bible, this uh, the translation I'm in now. I've just finished the prophets today. And every time God condemns one whom he calls a prophet or a shepherd, he condemns them on the basis of having ignored the word of God in order to please the people. In Micah chapter 1, it says this. And you'll allow me to paraphrase. You might want to check it out, but this is what it says. The words may not be the same. He says if a prophet, and he was talking about the conditions in his day, would come and say, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher to this generation. Things change from generation to generation. We see in Jeremiah, there was there during the reign of Zedekiah, the king, the last king before Jerusalem was destroyed and they were carried off into Babylon. Zedekiah had priests around him. He had prophets around him. And Jeremiah said they prophesy peace, peace, when there is no peace in order to please the king. And once Zedekiah laid his hands on Jeremiah and put him in a dungeon of filth where he nearly died. And 2 Chronicles 36 records as the premier accomplishment of Zedekiah that he laid his hands on God's prophet and he paid for it with his life. These in all ages through the Old Testament prophets, through the New Testament, and to the very day have one thing in common. Some of them may be popular. Some may be unpopular. Some of them may be libertines. Some of them may be faithful in the way that we de determine faithfulness to God's work. But all alike replace God's word with man-made things. Now in verse 1, he says that God bought them the Lord, the master that bought them. What does he mean? Well, it's consistent with the New Testament teaching that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So in a sense, Jesus bought everybody. But everybody is not redeemed. All have been bought by the blood, but only those who have come to God in confession and repentance have been redeemed, have been saved. And that underlines their tragedy in Peter's mind, I'm quite sure, because he knows that God died for them, that Jesus died in their place also. Christ paid for them, but they have not accepted him. And then in verses 4 to 16, here is a lot of detail. Several specific situations are mentioned from the Bible. But uh, I have called this examples of the fallen. There was an exa examination of the firmament. Here are examples of the fallen. John Albert Bengel, one of the great Greek scholars of all time, who though he has been dead for 300 years, his word studies in the New Testament are still in print today. Bengel said this, dealing with this section of scripture. He said, self-will produces presumptuous self-righteousness. Self-will produces presumptuous self-righteousness. 
Now, as we begin here, Peter says, God didn't spare the angels of heaven when they rebelled against him, but cast them into hell and put them in pits of judgment, pits of darkness reserved for judgment. God did not spare the ancient world, verse 5, but he preserved Noah, who was his preacher of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world. Verse 6, he said he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes, making them an example for those who would live an ungodly life. And then in verse 7, he sticks in here, lest his readers despair and fear. He says, and if God rescued Lot, who was a righteous man, from Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord knows how to rescue all of the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In verse 10, he begins to detail what he means now, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. You know, that is a striking statement. For there, along with Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, when he listed the things that God hates, Peter categorizes a disregard for authority as a, as a serious thing as immorality. That's what he says. Especially those who indulge in the flesh, in its corrupt desires, and who despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile dominions or majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. I want you to note especially verse 11. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, revile where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Here in this description, Peter mingles false doctrine, immorality, rebellion, he mingles them all together and says there are all kinds who reject the word, but all of them alike share the same punishment. In the book of Zechariah, there is a scene, there are several scenes. The first seven chapters of Zechariah are like a drama. It moves from one scene to another. And in the prophecy of Zechariah, one of the scenes has the high priest and the prophet and Satan standing before God. And while they stand before God, the angel of God standing there also has a difference with the devil. And he says to the devil very simply, the Lord rebuke you. In the book of Jude, we have described the archangel Michael who when he was disputing with the devil over the body of Moses refused to condemn even the devil but said rather the Lord rebuke you. And here perhaps referring to Zechariah, perhaps referring to the incident Jude referred to, he makes mention of the fact that these false teachers don't mind bad-mouthing anybody but even the angels of God do not badmouth the devil.
Now, friends, that's powerful. And before you let your tongue loose on somebody else within or without the church, you'd better remember that the archangel of God doesn't talk that way about the devil himself. Boy, that's strong, and that's the word. That's three places. The Lord didn't want us to miss it. Miss it. It's in three separate places of his scriptures. He says they are stains and blemishes, reviling in deceptions as they carouse, having eyes full of adultery and never ceasing from sin, enticing unstable souls. He continues to mix his metaphors. He's talking about immorality, and then he's talking about unstable Christians, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now some of the commentators speaking of this these verses of Scripture. Harry Ironside, who followed Dwight L. Moody and R.A. Torrey in a long and productive ministry at the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, who has given us a set of devotional and expository commentaries that cover about two-thirds of the Bible. Ironside, on this section of Second Peter, says this, Even as the Lord delivered Noah and Lot before the judgment fell, so now he never forgets his own, and he knows how to deliver the godly out of trials and temptations, persecutions and tribulations of every kind, and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. Talking of verses 10 and 11, uh, Ironside says this, They despise authority and do not desire to be subject to anyone. They are presumptuous venturing to attempt to explore mysteries which even the most godly never look into. They are self-willed, determined to have their own way, and are not afraid to speak evil of those of highest rank. So lifted up are they in their own pride and conceit. Louis Barbieri, a professor in one of the outstanding colleges of America, writing about Second Peter in a book published by the Moody Press, says this, they also despise government, which is basically the word for lordship. Within this context, it is probably best to understand this as disregarding delegated authority in the local church. These individuals are presumptuous and self-willed and not afraid to speak evil of leaders. Again, Harry Ironside, speaking on later verses in this passage, said this, while these ungodly men vaunt themselves against all authority, human, angelic, divine, even the elect angels, those who have been saved by God from falling into sin, who are greater far in power and might than men are, do not presume to bring railing accusations even against Satan. As these teachers of error mingle among the people of God, they are spots and blemishes, marring and disturbing the fellowship of the saints, giving themselves over to self-indulgence as they feast with Christians as though they belonged to the family of God. And then Barbieri, again I read Barbieri, okay, MacDonald, William MacDonald. Ah, there he is. 
McDonald says this, Michael recognized that Satan has a position of authority. Think then of the boldness of men who dare to do what holy angels are afraid to do. And think too of the corresponding judgment that will repay such defiance. MacDonald again. Well, I can't find that one. Okay. Page 2, B.H. Carroll. Now, says Peter, when the angel would not rail at Satan, not assuming to judge Satan, but said, God rebuke thee, Satan, these men that he is discussing, they rail at authority. They have no reference reverence for official positions of any kind. I think we should notice that privilege and training do not preserve anybody. You see, only conversion preserves people. What Peter is going to say at the end of this chapter is that these people were attached to the church, but they were not a part of the church. They were trained they were instructed, but they were not converted. Privilege and training do not preserve anyone. That ought to be obvious by reference to the angels that fell. The angels stood in the presence of God. The angels stood before God, and yet they, some of them, rebelled against God. In reading this week, I noticed a, an illustration in one of the documents that said that Joseph Stalin the man who followed Lenin as the leader of the Russian country after the revolution once attended a Greek Orthodox seminary and studied for the priesthood. So training and privilege do not preserve anybody. Linsky, a great Lutheran linguist who has left us the most honored language studies of the New Testament, commentaries that are highly expository says this about verse 10. It consists in blasphemous attacks on the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God-man. As the Lordship in verse 10a is Christ, so the glories are Christ. The one is his whole Lordship and the other are the glories through whom he exercises Lordship. Despising the former being Jesus in their minds, these men proceed openly to blaspheme also the latter with their words. What Linsky says by studying Peter and comparing him with Jude is that it is only because of an inward rebellion against God and his word that the false teachers also rebel against authority. So here they are named, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels under judgment, uh, and others. And then they are described. Here is truly an examination or an explanation of the fallen. And then in verses 17 to 22, Peter deals with an explanation of the false. Here he describes them further, springs without water, mist driven by the storms, for whom darkness has been reserved in judgment. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires and sensuality those who barely escape from the ones living in error. 
promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome lest that state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returned to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in its mire. This is just as clear as it can be. Peter says these particular ones that he writes about know what's right, but they don't live by it. And then he says it would have been better in their case if they had never known it rather than to know it and turn away from it. And many who believe that way anyway have taken this passage as a justification for believing in falling from grace. But that's not what Peter's saying. He very plainly is saying, for if you look at the last verse in the chapter, he quotes a pop proverb that says a dog stays a dog and a pig stays a pig. When a Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the modern era or any other era since Paul said this, Spurgeon said if that dog or that sow had been born again and had received the nature of a sheep, it would never have gone back into the filth again. So what Peter is saying is not that the lost can be saved, they never can. The saved can then be lost, they never can. He is saying rather there will always be the mixed multitude as we read about in numbers that begin to agitate the people of God. There will always be the hangers on, those who identify who have never truly been converted. And you will know them, Peter says, because of their attitude toward God's word. John says in 1 John chapter 4, these have gone out from us and they have proven by their going out that they were never of us in the first place. So here is an examination, an explanation rather of the false, which proves that they were never saved. Ironside said this, these are kept from error as they go on in dependence upon the Word of God. And he's talking about how the saved stay true to the Word. As it is opened up to them by the Holy Spirit, but those who have merely taken up with a system of doctrine, however sound, are always in danger of giving them up for some other system and so becoming false teachers, ensnared by the language of false teachers who allure through the lusts of the flesh by presenting doctrines that appeal to hearts that are unregenerated. Here's an explanation of the false. Peter says earlier in the chapter that these have quite an effect on new Christians because they offer liberty, but ironically, though they promise freedom, they themselves are the slaves of the flesh. They were never saved. There was no new nature. Reform, maybe. Reform, perhaps. They had seen the truth and wanted to respond to the truth, but they were never saved. And so as Spurgeon said, if that dog or that sow had been born again and received the nature of a sheep, he would never have returned to the filth from which he came. This chapter is the purpose behind the writing of Second Peter. We are challenged to be ready 
We are urged to meet our responsibility of abiding in and teaching and living by the Word of God. Because false teachers, he says in verse 1, are already among you, substituting man-made things for the Word of God. Now, Sunday morning, there is an urgent reality, which is the second coming of Christ. Sunday night, an urgent demand, which is that God's people live with all diligence, committed to the Lordship of Christ every day. Any question concerning 1 Peter chapter 1 or chapter 2? That clear, huh? He's mean, folks. He's almost as mean as you, but he's not near as mean as 1 John where he says you can't love God and hate your brother and anybody claims to is in darkness even until now. But it's true. Written in urgent times for an urgent need when the church was being lulled to sleep by acceptance in society as we are being today. What else? Joanne. They offer freedom, but they themselves are enslaved to the flesh. And you know, the flesh, like lust and other New Testament concepts, we often say fleshly things, lust, and like that are dirty words. They're not. All it really means is desires of the flesh. It means being dominated by your own will instead of by the, the will and the ways of God. 